So I think to just start things off, maybe for everyone to say what their first job in the industry was and how they got it. So anyone jump in? Eros? Um, yeah, I, I, um, I went to um, Manchester University to study drama and, um, and whilst I was there, I knew I, I wanted to do something with storytelling and, and drama and, and, uh, and probably directing, but I didn't know what. And I saw so many great films, I, I left college knowing that that's what I wanted to do, but with no idea of how to get there. So I wrote, this was pre-internet, um, I wrote a hundred letters, maybe more, to, to every director I admired and, um, and said, I want to be a director. Do you, you have admired any hundred directors? <laughs> well, I'm producers. <laughs> And, um, and, and I only got two uh, positive responses, and one was from Michael Winner, uh, who said, no, I haven't got a job for you. And then uh, the other one was a Welsh director called Carl Francis, who'd, who'd made um, some, some Welsh features, and, uh, and he was, it happened that he was about to start on a, a, a very low-budget drama series in Wales called Judas and the Gimp, um, and um, I got a job as a, he, he phoned me up and he said, I, I can't offer you a job as a director because I'm doing that, uh, but you could be a runner on it. So I, I got to be uh, the guy who was picking the actors up in the morning and uh, driving the prop car and stopping people from walking into the back of shots and making the tea. So that, that, was, my, that was my first job. Great. How about you, Rory? Um, so I was quite lucky for my first on-set job, um, whereas the location manager was a family friend, so got me in as a production assistant. Um, but when it comes to my VFX career, um, I actually posted over 100 CVs to London and said, please, somebody give me a job. And out of um, over 100 CVs, I had one response, uh, and they invited me for an interview and offered me a job as a runner, uh, which was a great opportunity to come and learn about VFX, because up until that moment, I had no idea what it was. Um, and yeah, they gave me a job as a runner um, in their studio in London, looking after the clients, making teas and coffees and, and bringing them food and stuff. And it all just progressed from there. So maybe posting is still the way to go rather I mean, than emailing. I <laughs> mean, it, I was around for the email days. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I just felt it was a bit more old school to post a letter yeah. out there. Yeah. Okay. And Sam? Um, after school and before going to university, which was actually a polytechnic at the time, because I screwed up my A-levels really rather badly, um, I had a year out and I was living in London with my brother, and um, I walked into a recruitment agency and said, I want a job. And they said, what kind of job would you like? And I said, film or television. They said, we've got a job at 20th Century Fox. I mean, like, it's a ridiculous thing, really. <laughs> um, so I, they sent me off for this interview um, with this guy called Paul Higginson, who I still know, and this is 30 years ago. Um, and I got a job which paid me £6,000 a year, and I was in European print. And what this meant was we were shipping 35mm prints and trailers to Europe. So my job when I got in the morning was to take a what we, was a, a subtitle spotting list, continuity dubbing spotting list, which is how people would translate it. It'd be this thick, and it would have every single line in it and all the cues. And I would have to photocopy it 12 times, and it would be uh, letter size going to A4 size, and that was my, it was like the worst thing. Um, but it, and those was, this is like pre-fax even. We're talking, it was a telex machine that came in in the morning with instructions in. Um, and then from there, I did that throughout university as well. I went back to that job and then ended up going back to work um, with them um, uh, after university and through there, kind of made my way through and up. Um, but going back to what you guys were saying, I did, wanted to do some work experience one summer, and I sent out 60 letters not quite, not quite 100 right. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> got 60 letters and the work experience that came back and i made it i, I was really careful how I, how I wrote it and i made it funny and i made it very personal and you know so i tailored it I, each, I tailored each one as well and i got um out of 500 applications one of six bbc uh, placements and ended up working on the oz trials with an incredible bunch of actors so it's it's interesting that you guys did that it really is a sort of you have to really want it. <laughs> you have to spend time on it. How many of us studied film or TV or studied what you actually do now at university or training course? Um, I guess, I mean, my course was, uh, was, was a, a sort of uh, theoretical course rather than, and didn't really have a huge uh, practical element. But 
but there were there was equipment there that we could use and so whilst I was un at university I made loads of pretty terrible short films <laughs> but it, but you know it's practice I, them. I always say it'd be great Absolutely to see everyone's not. worst film ever it'd be really useful <laughs> but when, when I left university it meant that I had something to show even though mm. even if you know it wasn't that impressive but did you always know that you wanted to work in film and TV even before university did you know you want to be a director or did it come um, I think I knew I wanted to be a director and um, and at university, I directed things. I directed plays. I directed short films. So it was. It was. It sort of became clear to me that it was film that I wanted to work in. How about you, Rory? Did you know about VFX as a twelve-year-old, starry-eyed boy? No, no, I really didn't. Um, I initially did a BTEC in performing arts and wanted to be an actor. Okay. And it was from doing that I realised that actually um, I was enjoying the management side of it more and, and sort of managing the production rather than actually being in it. Mm -hmm. So I decided from there um, to get more involved with filmmaking um, and I actually um, one summer did some work with It's My Shout, which, are the, okay. which is the trainee scheme. And then from there I went and did a BA in film and television in Swansea, um, which the course was about 80% practical and 20% theory. Um, but none of it covered VFX. Um, and it was from doing that course I decided that actually I'm not a very um, creative person. I prefer the business side to uh, filmmaking. And I went on to do an MA in producing at the Atrium. Um, but it was um, during this period I had my first taste of visual effects where I was working um, for John Guamu as his assistant on the post-production of The Machine. Um, and that's where I kind of learned a tiny bit about VFX and, and what it was, and it sparked my interest. And I kind of put it, put it to the back of my mind. And then, um, yeah, after that I, is when I started applying to places up in London for VFX studios. Yeah. And Sam, did you always know you wanted to well, be a writer and a consultant now? Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I always wanted to write. I've been writing forever. Just, just writing and writing and writing, like funny stuff and just stuff to make people laugh. And, um, um, but, you know, I think certainly as a writer, the, the more you live, the better it gets and the more life experience you have and the worse things that happen, the, the writing like, gets, gets better. I mean, the, the only good thing about awful things happening is like, now I know what grief is about. Um, uh, but, no, so I, 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 was al I always loved movies and I have my mother to thank for that. And um, so Sunday afternoon was always watching what she used to call the crummy films on TV. So it's always the black and white. So things like Gone with the Wind and Jezebel and, the most, and um, Wuthering Heights and all the black. So I was massively into all the black and white movie stars. Um, and then she'd take me to the cinema to see reruns of Dr. Zhivago. And, and my dad would take us to see things like Star Wars and Indiana Jones. And I absolutely loved all those as well. So always, and then I discovered, and it was actually when uh, Palace Pictures was around and they started selling stuff to film four, which, you know, I remember when there was only three channels. Um, and so Film 4 arrived and started putting movies on on a Friday, and then it was things like Diva and Subway and just some amazing films. And that's when I developed my own love of films. So yes, I'd always wanted to work in films. But then somewhere along the line, I got this kind of strange, I want to be in theatre thing going on. So I studied theatre studies and communication arts, thinking I wanted to work in the theatre. Um, and I used to go to London and I used to pay five pounds to stand in the back and go and watch like everything in the theatre. But I used to watch out for the empty seats in the front because there's always like the VIP seats weren't always filled. So I'd always look out. So I'd go and sit in those in the second half. And it almost always worked. And I would, I would look at the person directly in front and then go and find them in the interval and then ask them what their seat number was and then just add a seat number on it. And I was there watching, I think it was probably David Hare or something, you know, great socialist sort of drama. And um, this woman, I went and found her, and I just looked at what she was wearing. She was sort of dripping in designer clothes and ham Chanel handbag. And I suddenly realised that this was what champagne socialism was. And that um, if I was going to change the world, it wasn't theatre. I was going to go into film or television. Um, thanks to a Trevor Griffiths quote, which says, you want to change the world, write for television. Anyway, so then I saw it all up the river and started making commercial films, and <laughs> that was that. But yeah, so, but theatre studies has stood me in good stead when you're talking to directors who are really into, into theatre, and I can, I, can, I can at least talk in, in their language. I think it's maybe interesting, because I know you worked a lot in sales and distribution, and it being okay if you don't immediately know what you want to do very early on, and knowing that you have to try it, because yeah. it but might not be you what you think, what right? Yeah. So I got into sales because um, I, then I left 20th Century Fox and um, went to work for Polygram, as it was just becoming Polygram. Ma uh, Polygram just bought Manifesto. 
uh, that week. And I didn't want to be in sales. I wanted to be a producer. So I went to Polygram to try and work my way up a floor to working title. That was my, that was my plan. Um, and I was an assistant. I was hating it. I was 26 years old. And um, I got offered a job as in doing sales. And I really didn't want it. But I did have, I, made, I had to make a decision. It was like, what do I want more? Do I want to, I, what I wanted most was not to be an assistant anymore. So I accepted this, this job offer to do, be a salesperson, really, really not expecting how much I would ultimately love it. Absolutely, for the first 15 years, absolutely, totally, utterly loved it. Um, okay. And it's so you don't necessarily know, it's trying things out. It, it's a similar thing with the VFX industry. I mean, I do my BA, I'm my MA, I, ne I never heard about VFX. I didn't know there was this whole other industry out there until I was in it. And all of a sudden, it's like, wow, there, there is massive opportunities for people interested in working in production. Mm. Um, and it's just often overlooked as part of the education system. Mm. I think um, there's maybe a lot of people in the room who would like to be directors or writers. But Eros, how do you feel um, maybe th what the impression of what a director does or what makes a good director, how does that sync up with reality? Like, how would you define the qualities that make a good director? Um, I, I think I think there's sort of there's there's two things that you you really have to get sorted and 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 one of them is um, is is sort of the how you do it and, mm. and part of that is learning your craft you know how do you talk to writers producers how do you persuade people to give you uh, the chance to direct something the money to make a film because it's a lot of money mm. that you're wanting people to risk on you. Um, you know, how do you how do you learn how to work with editors, costume designers? Because uh, I don't know anything about costume really. Makeup. You know, you and as a director, you need to have um, a sense of what every single person's job is: the writer, the VFX person, the development person. Mm. You know, you need to understand and be able to talk to them. So, so uh, you know, you. you you can learn all those individual skills as you go along. Mm. Um, and you can sort of forge opportunities. A lot of the time, you know, you, you, end, you start off doing something that you don't really want to do in order to get to the place where you really want to be. So, so, so that's the sort of how you go about it. Um, and that's really hard. Mm. Um, but, but the other part of directing is, is knowing what, why you want to do it and, and what what stories you really want to tell because and, and it is true as you as you live life you kind of get more well i have anyway um i've got a more a, a better sense of, of why it is i do what i do why do i want to make an audience cry or scream or howl at the television or laugh or you know whatever whatever it is and um and i think you know as a storyteller that's a really really important thing just work out what it is inside of you that, that you're burning to get out there and share with the world. Um, and then at the same time, work on, on the how of it. And being able to communicate that right at every stage to kind of financiers like me or bigger than me and then keeping hold of it, I guess, is hard. Yeah, and, you know, and, you know, knowing, you know, when you're pitching a project, knowing exactly what it is, what's at the heart of it mm. um, is important in your own head and in your own heart, but it's important when you're talking to the money people. It's mm. important when you're talking to the crew. It's important when you're talking to the cast. And then when you're when you're trying to sell the film, you know, knowing what is really at the heart of it, and and not letting go of that, because there'll be a thousand people along the way who kind of go, well, do you know, you know, it's set in, it's set in. Are you sure you want to set it in Wales? <laughs> yes, I'm sure I want to set it in Wales. You know, all you know, there's there's a thousand people we who won't want say that. to kind of. <laughs> We want you to kind of shift your ideas, but, but keeping hold of it and being, you know, fighting fiercely for it is really important. Mm. I feel like you could probably speak to that. Yeah. Um, keeping hold of what's special about a project from yeah, a writer. Um, see, I'm, I was on the other side of things, which is I was the one selling it. Um, and so, you know, w and that's what I, you know, I write now with an absolute audience in mind. My, my speciality is knowing international audiences and markets and distributors and knowing what, what they want. And basically what they want is something that's really si simple to sell. So that means, you know, if you've got, you know, anyone who's been in my workshops, you know, if you, you've got a genre, you stick to it. You don't confuse genres because people are selling it all the way down the line. But then again, you want, well, you know, originality within that. So it's very much the, um, 
you know, what, I, what I say to people is give the audience what they want, but in a way they're not expecting it. So, um, so I would be on the other side and probably, and I have been the bad cop where the director's gone, I've got this amazing idea. And I'm like, nope. <laughs> and that's what I did last year. I was working on this film um, uh, called, uh, it's now called Freehold, it was called Two Pigeons. I became on as associate producer because they'd run out of money to pay me. Um, and it's a genre movie, but it was kind of a genre, it was a co- most dark comedy, and they, they, they were, it was a mishmash of genres, and I just sort of kept saying to them, you need to really choose one and stick to it. Um, and, and, and you know, it, classic Samantha Hawley, which like, managed to get into South by Southwest, it had a great premiere, and they did absolutely no money. Um, because people come back and going, well, it's really hard to tell what it is. I don't know how I'd sell it. So I would be on the other side of things, really trying to keep that little nugget, you know, really well kind of wrapped up and, ch- and cherished. I mean, that's the thing as well. It's like, you know, I was working on films that I loved with filmmakers that I adored and, you know, I was very passionate about what I did. But then somewhere along the line, if it f- fell out of that, then it would just become really hard to sell. And mm. you know, the thing, you want the film to succeed because you want the film to get out there and make money, but you want everybody involved to be part of a success. And when it isn't, it's, it's pretty heartbreaking. So I, was, I would be the bad cop in that situation, most likely. <laughs> what do you think the traits are of the really successful writers who are able to have a sustainable career in film and TV in quite a difficult industry, I'd say? Well, I don't know now. <laughs> you feel because <laughs> it's probably quite franchise. But yeah, I think that's slightly weird. I think I probably could have answered that question three years ago. I don't know that I can so much anymore because I don't, I'm just setting off on my own. Yeah. Huh. Well, w- I guess, what kind of tools do you think that they need to have? The reality of life as a writer, I mean, what is that like? I, I do think it's an understanding of an audience. Um, and, you know, and you are an audience. We're all an audience. Mm-hmm. And it's having that. And I think the, the, the filmmakers, or, or even like up-and-coming filmmakers, people come to my courses, it's the ones who just refuse to listen because they are special. Yeah, I know I'm um, listening to everything you're saying, but this is original, but this is different. And it never is. It just never is. So it's been really interesting for me as someone who knows film back to France, then going in and sitting. I had a um, meeting with Hartswood last year um, and um, now working with Eleven and obviously two really amazing TV production companies. And, you know, I was concerned that they would think I had no experience in television, which I really don't. But in both cases, they're like, well, you obviously know the audience, which is r- incredibly reassuring to me mm-hmm. that that kind of translates to television apparently I mean we're still not yet proven um, but um, so I think you know it's really getting over yourself is a lot of it and um, you know going down to the multiplexes and see what people are going to see and, and really understanding that people do, you know people will show up at a multiplex not knowing what they're going to watch and they'll look at a post and go I like the look of that so you know it's really about you know you might be an amazing filmmaker but right at this moment you're not that special and I think it's really having to accept that you're going to have to really keep an audience in mind and work within a genre that's understood. Come on one of my workshops. <laughs> it's all there. And kind of taking notes is sometimes a difficult thing starting out, isn't it? From whether it's financier or whoever's on board the project. Well, it's really it's interesting. I've worked, um, I've worked with so many writers and so many directors, and it's really interesting how you, know, you can be in a room with a writer who doesn't take any notes. That's really annoying. So I make sure that I take notes now because mm. you know, I'm on the other side. Um, but then I've also I've seen good projects go bad when I um, worked with the writer director uh, actually on this uh, this Gillian Anderson thriller, and you know the poor guy was getting notes from the uh, UK Film Council, Film Four, um, a produ- the producer it was it was Kevin Loder and Damien Jones. It's really good you know, people, mm. and um, and then me and Julia Short, who was the who were the sales and distribution, mm. and so we were trying to do it from an audience sales perspective, and so our notes were always really similar. And then I remember going into meeting with Tessa Ross at Film Four, and she's like, "I can see this in Venice," and I'm like, well, "I don't think we're making the same movie." And so the poor Oof. director, writer director, was trying to please everybody, and in yeah. trying to please everybody just turn this thing into this sort of terrible pudding of a film. So I think, you know, in terms of that, it's sort of, try- you, it's really hard trying mm. to find your way through that. What he should have done is listen to me and Julia. <laughs> 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 because then the film would have been better. Um, but that's, that is, it can be really, really hard. And mm. then you get people who are really resistant to it. Mm. I was out with a writer friend the other day who, um, who was telling me about this other writer friend of ours who, he's not, he's not, he's not a friend, he's a, acquaintance, um, who writes for one of the really, really big BBC ones, who apparently was in a meeting with the BBC executive and um, was giving him notes and called in the C word and stormed out because he'd never written a script. I'm like, that's also not the way to do it. 
It's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, to touch on what you were saying, Eros, about kind of being able to communicate with so many different people, yeah. film is such a collaborative, yeah. it's a huge collaboration. And so as much as it can be so difficult having conflicting notes for sure, but you have to, you have to collaborate, you have to be open to it in the least. And I mean, Rory, how do you feel um, maybe about a VFX producer? Because you're hiring a lot of people, aren't you? So you're very yeah. useful here today. Yeah. But um, what kind of skill set does that normally involve? Like, what are you looking for in hiring? So, um, to work in VFX production, um, you sort of have to be able to um, adapt to change. Mm. I mean, in, in line with what these guys have just been saying, um, it's a very collaborative process. There are a lot of people having their input and their voice as to how something is going to look. And the, the purpose of VFX is we're making things that are completely absurd. You can't imagine in your wildest dreams. And you, you've got a line on a piece of paper explaining what it is. And we somehow have to realize that vision. We have to concept it. And we have to create it in a way that everybody is happy with. When you've got a lot of different voices, it's sort of translating that. And there can be a lot of iterations then as to what people are looking for. So it's, it's managing that process. It's giving the clients what they want, mm. but as well as managing expectations. And Talk about how you'd fit in in the whole production team. Like, who's your point person normally at each stage um, as a kind of VX, VFX team? Sure. Um, so the clients uh, uh, deal directly, so the director and the producer clients side deal directly with the producer's mm. uh, VFX side. And they're the person translating all of that information um, that's coming from the director down to the teams of people. Um, so you'll have a VFX supervisor as well, is integral to the entire process. And they're the creative vision behind um, the VFX work. So they're the ones interpreting the brief from the director, making sure creatively we've got the correct thing. And then you've got the VFX producer managing the business aspect of it. Okay, interesting. And how, what's the relationship with the director like, for example? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a collaborative process. We obviously want to give the director what they want. And it's helping them achieve their vision and letting them know. Because technology, although it's come on leaps and bounds over the past five years or so, there's still limitations to what you can physically do uh, with computer-generated imagery. So it's, it's all about delivering that product that's within the director's specification, within their creative brief, and making it look good, but physically being able to do it. You've been very uh, professional. What happens if a director changes his or her mind on set and that might impact upon your timeline or your um, I mean it budget. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it happens, it happens. I mean, typically we'll, we'll bid a project based on a script and then um, we'll submit that as a, as a pre-shoot bid and then we'll submit a post-shoot bid. So we, uh, post-shoot bid. So we do understand that, you know, things in the moment do change on set and it could affect the entire creative brief of the way something's going to be shot and, and seen in the final product. And, you know, we're used to that and we're, we're able to adapt to that change very quickly. And, and, um, and usually there's your representative, the VFX supervisor, is on set when those decisions are made. So a director will be talking to his or her VFX supervisor um, and they'll be talking to the producer. So there'll be, you know, the, the creative conversation will be happening and the cash conversation will be happening at that moment. So it's, you know, it's, it's rare that you arrive at post-production with, you know, and, and it's a complete surprise. Right. Um, I think it would be a good opportunity to see the Milk Showreel, if that's yeah. possible. Um, it's an area I know least about VFX, so it would be great to see it. That's all right. Um, yeah, we've got, a, we've got a bit of work to look at um, that we did on Fantastic Beasts. They look really impressive, but it's also like a bit of a blur <laughs> for me. <Yes. laughs> I could tell it was great. Um, I know you started, you worked on some of our films, actually, in the kind of VFX side, but um, talk to me about your kind of daily life now because your resources manager so it's sure. a bit of a shift from direct sure um yeah so i um i work as a resources manager so my day-to-day -day job is managing the central schedule of the company um sort of looking at jobs that are coming in jobs that are currently going on jobs that are delivering uh, and the sort of day-to-day -day schedule for all of the artists that we employ um, and then from that schedule, I sort of um, deduce where we need to make hires and, and then I go as far as directly recruiting as well. So I look after recruitment and I go out and I, I dip into our talent pool then and, and look to fill those positions as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very uh, rewarding and challenging job at the same time um, with VFX. Um, 
the, the turnover schedules are often changing from clients and, and we're reacting to that very quickly. And so it's just making sure that we have the human infrastructure in place to adapt to that ebb and flow of, of work coming in and out of the building. Mm -hmm. um, how many applications would you get in a week? It varies um, throughout the year. We typically get a lot more applications in the summer when people are finishing college and university. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I think I think we probably get about 120 applicants a week to process. It's okay. a lot. Um, and you have about 200 people now? You're expanding? Yeah, that's right. Um, so we've just taken on a new floor in our office in London and doubling our capacity up to 200. So yeah, and we're, we're, we're confident that we're going to be quite busy this summer. So Would you want people to post <laughs> an application to you <laughs> now? Or going. would you be like, <laughs> oh... <laughs> um, we're actually, keep an eye out on our social media links, we're in the process of updating our um, recruitment page on our website and as soon as that's in place um, it'll be quite easy to apply, um, so yeah. Sorry to put all the pressure on you as people like hiring directly, but as we all are in different ways, um, so try to bother us all if you can. I think um, it's interesting to think about what steps people can take to build to getting a job with you, even if they might not be able to get one now, depending sure. on what you're looking for, what sure. level. Um, what do you think people can do on the, off their own back or elsewhere? Well, so when we're looking to hire, um, you've got two routes of entry, really. If you, you want to go into production, if you have any production experience, we'd consider putting you into an entry-level position such as a, a PA or something like that. Um, whereas we're not... Um, a, we're not worried about hiring people who don't have experience, um, but they'll usually go into what we have, a runner scheme. Um, and runner scheme is kind of like an internship. Um, I like to call it earn as you learn. Um, it's a bit better than an internship. It's a decent length contract, and you're being paid to come in and learn about VFX. Because um, I do understand that you know the VFX pipeline from from the outside can seem quite complicated and, and quite off-putting, but actually you know when we're hiring people uh, at entry level, we do realise that maybe a lot of them don't really know about VFX or what it is or how it works or how a shot gets from here to there. So we do take that into consideration, and the the best thing we do is offer the the runner scheme. So people come in and their main job is with is within facilities, is making teas and coffees for clients and looking after them when they come in. But um, when they're not doing that, they're learning about their chosen discipline and, and sort of finding out where they want to go within the VFX team. Right. How did you get your first directing job, Eros? And how long did that take from being a, having the ambition? <laughs> what, in, in general? Just yeah, in general, yeah. Um, um, uh, in, it, it depends. I think, you know, m my advice is go out and make short films and and um you know make the best short films you can get 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 the best actors um don't spend too much money on it don't make them too long um but go out there and practice your craft and once you have some short films that are great um you know producers will will be chasing after you because talent and new talent is always really exciting so so you know, pursue that and and, um, and and practice your craft. And I don't know, it, there, there is no single route. It's it's really tough. You know, I I um, wanted to be a film director, but I went into television, and I've been really lucky that I've had a a, a career in television that's you know that's lasted touchwood quite a bit so far. Um, but um, but you know, so other other people go into theatre directing. So you know, s directors like Sam Mendes or um, uh, What's his face who made Billy Elliot? Uh, Simon Do Stephen Daldry. You know they they went and they ran theatre companies and then they shifted into making films. Or um, or if you're a genius, you can like Steven Spielberg. You can you know steam in and and make Jaws when you're 26 and then you know the world's your oyster. But you know uh, it, there's lots of different routes. Um, but I'd say practice, make brilliant short films, and then you know work your way up the ladder that way. And I guess, Sam, what do you feel a short film in particular needs to do to get attention? Yeah, so I've, um, is this one? I've worked with um, a lot very, very, very many first-time filmmakers, and I started a scheme called The Viper's Nest, um, which was in 2010, um, which was, at the time, I did that because um, I felt that, because I like commercial movies, um, I used to say I don't do bleak. 
Um, and I felt there wasn't a, um, it was, if there's loads of schemes out there for, for, for filmmakers who wanted to be the next Andrea Arnold or Mike Lee or whatever. And I just really felt there wasn't the support for people at, out of the UK who wanted to make commercial films. So I started the scheme and, and it was really successful. And so I basically put writers, directors, producers together. And it ran, it ran twice and there's 36 alumni now, many of whom, actually one of them, is, uh, who's, who's now a very successful writer, is now my writing mentor, which is a really <laughs> wonderful thing. Um, but so they all had to submit sort of, you know, the directors all had to submit sh short films, and so we're watching an awful, awful, awful lot of stuff. I mean, going back to what something you said, it's like, keep it short. <laughs> there was someone who'd done a 28-minute short, and my colleague literally had to sit me down and make me watch it, because 28 minutes is an episode, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but no, it was very much, you want to see a bit of magic. Now, the thing is, is and I say this if it's for any genre, you want to see a little bit of magic, and that mostly, especially with drama, and most people want to do drama, is a bit of magic that, that happens between the director and their lead actor or actors. And that shows, an you know, that, shows that you can work with actors and give off and make, get an extraordinary performance out of them. And certainly I used to encourage my first-time filmmakers is to, to make, the f make your film as cheaply as possible so you can get the actor that you want. Because actually the people who've gone on to have really, really great careers as directors um, quite often were starting out with someone. So I used the example of Paul Andrew Williams, um, who I worked with a couple of times, and his first film was London to Brighton, and he got a performance out of Johnny Harris that launched both their careers. And, you know, if it had been a bigger budget film, he'd have been trying to persuade get someone bigger in there. So or you think of sort of someone like Ben Mendelssohn in Animal Kingdom. He, he, no one had heard of him before that. So you're looking at those incredible, powerful performances that you come out, and you're just like, that's knocked my socks off. And if you can do that in a short, that's something you've really got to try and do. Um, the other thing is it's got to look good. <laughs> it's really, really, really got to look good. And if you've got a budget, you've really got to, you know, if you've got no budget, which is, you know, m more likely, you've got to really, really, really think about production values. And, um, and again, I'm going back to kind of first films. There was a really great film called Lilting uh, that was, I think it was, either f it was one of the film London films, made £150,000. Um, and basically, the production design was um, vintage and wallpaper. It was wallpaper. There's the most amazing wallpaper all over the place. And then the, you know, the shot of um, uh, Ben Whishaw is the, is the poster with this incredible wallpaper. And that's it. And it's just beautiful. And photography as well. You know, getting, getting those sort of things that don't need to necessarily cost that much. It's just, it's just making it look amazing and knocking my socks off. Actually, what I would say to that, add on to that, is having this conversation with Joe Oppenheimer, who's a friend who used to be a very senior BBC exec, and he was like, story, 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 story. So that's someone else's input. Mm. And, sorry, can I say something else? Yeah. Um, the other <laughs> thing for me is like, you know, whilst I, you know, I, d I don't do magic realism in film because it doesn't sell, you know, I've, you stick to your genre, but in short, you actually have an opportunity to do something amazing, to do something really wild that makes you go, what? I wasn't expecting that. So something really that pops out of it. It's just something that's really going to grab the attention. Something that won't, that's because in a, a, a short is a showcase, whereas your first film has got to get out, get out there. So you've, got, mm -hmm. uh, you've actually got a little luxury to do something that's really silly, ridiculous, wild, something in a short, so do it. I think that's so interesting. Can I just ask who are the filmmakers in the room and who want to get to the industry? Filmmakers? Industry? Okay. Right, so can I just ask, so directors, writers, writer-directors, <laughs> producers, anything else? VFX. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> Did I say writers? Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, editors. Okay. Anyone who doesn't know? <laughs> Yay. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's so interesting, and also to think through how much do you think through the festivals that are important for that short to go to, um, and then also thinking about things like length, slots for shorts, all those things have to somewhat be a they part really of the do. process. Um, and you know, I'm I'm in I'm not an expert in yeah. any shape or form on short film festivals at all. That's not my thing. However, you know, you get a short and it's award winning. Mm -hmm. you know, there are certain very prestigious. Uh, awards that come with shorts, and especially if it gets like to BAFTAs or, or something like that. Mm. So, you know, certainly a BAFTA-nominated short film director is someone that you want to be all over. And interesting to think through um, the route you were talking about where it's kind of making stuff, and then there's also the working your way up through TV gradually from runner to kind of first AD and so on. Um, 
but even then, I mean, both have their sense of weaknesses, but working from TV, there's still a bit of a shift to make, isn't there, to feature film, maybe through snobbery or nonsense or whatever, but can you talk through that transition to film? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I, try not and be ch I try not to be chippy as much as I can, but... Um, yeah, there is a huge, there is a lot of snobbery amongst film people about television. You know, film people think there television is, is close-up. still is, which is bonkers. Close-up, close-up, wide shot, you know, that, that, w that we all make soap. And I think what's happened over the last 10 years is that, you know, the production values in television has gone up. Um, the distribution model of television is, is robust, whereas the distribution of model of film is really wibbly wobbly and you know making money in film is much harder making money in tv is much easier than it was and and and, and we're using the same you know the same cameras the same lenses the same actors the same writers are being used in film and television so there is there's definitely something interesting and strange happening at the moment and yet film people are still snobby so so persuading them that you know that i as a television director can make features that will reach an audience and hopefully will excite and, and you know and get people to pay um, at the gate to come in and, and watch the film that's that's still a bit of a trick mm. um, and I was really lucky that I I, um, I was in, I worked with a writer to develop uh, to develop a script called a uh, which means the the library suicide it's called the library suicides in English and um, and we got money from um, uh, film Cymru um, on the cinematic scheme to make it which is which is a scheme open to everyone and on and is ongoing and is um, is a fantastic uh, scheme to kind of make you your first film and it was it's a collaboration between film Cymru, bbc espadarec uh it was bfi bfi yeah. yes um and um and i, I got to make a uh, a 90-minute feature, you know, which played in festivals and got a got a theatrical distribution and um and and now i can use that to take to uh, film producers saying, look, I, ma I made this film, it's a proper film, it's got film shots in it, it's, you know, <laughs> it, 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 it's got credits at the start and at the end and my name's, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, um, so that, that makes a big difference. I think it's interesting that a lot of talent we've worked with actually, Phil John being an example, we funded his first feature with Scotland and Ireland as well, and um, he directed Downton Abbey, like huge budgets, and it's quite a micro-budget first feature, so it's an odd comparison. Yeah, I mean, there, there is a paradox that, that I can, you know, I can direct an episode of, of Daredevil for Marvel, which costs, I don't know, it's like a $12 million for 45 minutes, and yet, I, like, getting, getting a feature film um, with a £300,000 budget off the ground is really tough, you know, <laughs> but, but that's... that's you know, th there's a fight. But also, TV is a lot more reliable, right? And it does pay better. So why film? Do you, you know, are you still wanting to do a mixture of the two? Yeah, I'd love to do a mixture of the two. I mean, I think film, uh, f in film, the, uh, the freedom that a director gets in film is still greater than the freedom a director gets in television. Um, and as the, you know, in, in television, the writer is, the author of the work and the director comes in usually afterwards to service the, the writer's vision. And the, the writer's often the showrunner. In movies, it's the other way around. The director is the person who, you know, wears the trousers and, uh, and, and the writer serves them. So there's a, there's a shift there. I, I, I bet that's going to change, you know. And, and when you see Martin Scorsese directing, um, you know, a 10-part TV series or, or Baz Luhrmann, you know, so, yeah, or, you know that, that shift in who has, who's the creative boss, that's, that's changing. Could we watch the trailer for Atlaficast? Available on all streaming <laughs> services. <laughs> Only one ninety-nine. Um, so how did it differ, it's a really silly question, how did it differ making this film to, say, the episode you did for Black Mirror or Doctor Who? Um, what are the main distinctions directing for this? Day-to-day, uh, -day, not one bit. You know, in terms of you turn up on set, you have six pages to shoot, you have actors that you've rehearsed with, there's caterers, there's 
first assistant directors. You know, the process of making a film is, is the same. Um, making a film for very little money is, is really, really tough. Um, but, um, but that's not a TV thing, is it? Um, I, I, I think the biggest difference is in, in thinking of a single story and thinking of the, the, the epic um, that I think cinema is particularly good at um, communicating, sharing with an audience. You know, the, 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 you know the, the larger scale of imagery, of themes, of, of drama. Um, having said that, I try and do that on, on all the TV pieces that I, I make as well. So, um, <laughs> you know, and, and I think lots of TV directors are continually trying to bring the cinematic and the epic and the, 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 the you know, the, the, the huge into the, into the, into the TV space. So, um, yeah, there's a huge amount of crossover and similarity, I think. And I suppose also running times and windows will all change, but how does it differ specifically developing something for, let's say, 90 minutes rather than um, in an episodic format? And were there any challenges with this project? Yeah, I, I, I think this, you know, the structure of TV, mm. um, because there's six episodes, n in an ideal world, each episode does have a three-act structure and does have a protagonist and, and works that way, but it, not always. And I think very often in TV, you lean on, on A, B story structure, so you bounce off one to go to the other, whereas in, in movies, they tend to be more linear and a single protagonist pushing through. But, but that's not always true either. So, um, I mean, I think, in, you know, in, I think making a succinct 90-minute story in which uh, the hero finds the quest, realizes the quest, and then deals with having changed the world. Um, it's a really brilliant form. Um, and, and if you can leave the audience satisfied at the end of that, um, you know, you've, you've done a good job. Whereas in television, um, your objective at the end of, of an episode of television is to kind of make sure that there's enough unresolved so they come back next week to watch the next episode. So yeah, there are, there are some fundamental differences. Sam, I feel like you could really um, well speak to this. <laughs> so you're writing for TV and film at the moment. You've yes. In the past, developed hugely successful film. So how do the two differ? Um, well, it's like you know, hearing you say 90 minutes, or it could be 100 minutes, or it could be 110 yeah. minutes, it could be 120 minutes. And certainly those are arguments that I have had with various people along the way. It's like, no, you can't have your film 120 minutes because like, you know, no one's going to buy it. We need to cut 20 minutes out of it. I don't know how we do that. I've cut it. Let's get somebody else in to have a go. So those sort of things, um, you know, are, are... And actually one of the reasons I left sales is because every film ended up being a battle. Because everyone was making a slightly different film. Mm -hmm. Between the writer and the director, even. Between the producer and the, and the investor. And, and, you know, you would end up with all these films that weren't quite working. And it's just, when, they weren't, when, they don't, when, it's, when they're not quite working, it means they don't work. And that is, it became kind of heartbreaking because like, I was really trying, you know, you get to work, you know, the last director I worked with was Catherine Hardwick, you know, who did the first Twilight movie. And she's like a powerhouse of person to work with. And she's, and this is like, you need to find people to work with like this because there I'd been doing my thing and she made me up my game. I'd been chugging along and she made me up my game. And I was like, right, okay. I loved it, absolutely loved it. Real, real, real challenge working with someone like that. And yet, you know, we had promised our distributors that this was going to be a glossy, movie and it was shot the entire thing was shot on handheld and we had promised our distributors it was not going to be shot on handheld and somewhere along the line she no one told her and so, so she was given her and, and actually some of the movie it's like and it's and it's it's a really small thing but it did affect how the film looked it didn't look as expensive I and mean, this is just a kind of I mean, you, you could totally come back and tell me i'm wrong here but and it was just one of those things so you know you have all those sort of things whereas now going, going to television i just i'm absolutely loving it I'm absolutely loving it because, so my script is the first people we're going to send it to is Sky Comedy. So I've been watching a lot of Sky Comedy. And so it's got to be exactly 54 pages. There is no argument. I, there's no, there is going to be absolutely no argument, even though that I'm the writer here. I, I'm not going to be able to go, I think it should be 62. I can't get it under 62. There's just, there's just no argument. And it's for that audience. So I have to write it for that audience. When the pitch document goes out, it goes out for Sky Comedy. Um, and then if they turn it down, it goes to, let's say, the BBC, then I have to write in an extra four pages. Is that right? I don't know. But extra four pages and take out the act breaks because it's so specific. And to me, 
having spent so long with films that just like failed because there was this kind of absolute fundamental misunderstanding, not misunderstanding, but just like everyone's pulling in a different direction, to actually doing something that's so focused is an absolute joy. <laughs> it's an absolute joy. Because, you know, if, if even for a spot, you know when it would be. <laughs> Interesting. And um, is there still something more, this epicness, is that a word? that um, Eros spoke about. Is there something more epic about film and, and what is that? Is it something intangible or is that changing now? Well, I think, you know, there was always the, you know, the film was, you know, was the highlight and, and actors working in television like George Clooney wanted to go and make it in film, whereas now they're all going back again, which is really wonderful. Mm -hmm. And the UK really hasn't caught up, you know, going back to what you're saying. is like, so my, 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 my script, my first script, which is the one that's now is being re commissioned into a TV series, um, a friend of mine is a producer, um, absolutely loved it, wanted to pick it up, and suggested, you know, who, what directors do you want? And actually, I suggested a, a TV director who I'm a big fan of, and he came back and said, well, if that's the kind of film you want to make. <laughs> and I didn't do the deal with them, because I just thought, they are the dinosaurs now. Um, and I actually mentioned this, this director's name to a friend at the BBC and said, Oh, yeah, that's exactly the kind of person we want to be working with. And I was like, God, fuck! So there's this portion of the industry that is still really, really behind and snobby about TV directors, which is unbelievably ridiculous because also TV directors have more hours behind them. I mean, it's like pilots. Mm. The more you film, the more experienced you get, the more you can like, come up with creative ideas and solutions, and, and, and you can get good actors. Good actors want to work, you know. So all of those things, and there is a certainly a significant part of the industry that is is really behind there's mm. no doubt about that which is so annoying yeah i guess it's quite funny as well you could make a uh, quite low budget short and get into some great festival and that can be nothing the only thing you've done but you might get further than someone who's done so many that's, hours that's, that's, that's <laughs> only especially in film, if you're right? male i mean mm. that's that's something that's you know is still is still a problem it's mm. definitely still a problem and um you know i'm talking to uh, Jane Hudson at um, 11, she was definitely saying that, you know, she's never, ever, ever seen a female writer be passed over for being female, but she's definitely seen female directors being passed over for being female. Okay. And why do you think that is in your, um, in your opinion? How long have we got? <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole other panel. I mean, I, I think, you know, if anyone's reading anything about what's going on at the moment, then hopefully mm. that, is, that is changing. Mm. But I certainly have a lot of female director friends who find themselves passed over for the hot up-and-coming Yann de Mange type mm -hmm. who's maybe just done music videos. But you I think know, it so is important for everyone in the room to know that just put yourself forward as much oh, as possible. Completely. I mean, um, it's really... I mean, here's the thing as well. It's like, to be a woman right now is really good. <laughs> it's really good. And one of the reasons I got picked up by my agent, he's like, you know, you're a woman and you're Welsh. And so, because I was living in Wales, and you know, and I, I, you know obviously I was, I was born and brought up in England, but um, you know, two Welsh parents moved back here, and then I, you know, you know back to come, you know, you guys, am, am, am I Welsh? Welsh enough. So that's been great, and now I've done my time here, and so I've kind of absorbed and rediscovered my roots. Um, but you know, but there's certainly, you know, there, there are advantages to be had right now, being a woman, and, and being a woman who puts herself forward. Mm. That's the other thing as well. It's like take no prisoners. I think the infrastructure is a long way off, though. So. Amazing, we're, we're all doing things Phil to get. London, who are committed now to 50%. So, yeah. you know, we're, we're, we're getting there. It's a, it's a really good time. It's a really good time. But we need to look at the barriers before that. We do, yeah. So even getting to be aware of an advert from the BFI or from these institutions. So I think it's really positive, but something that we see a lot is women feeling that they should be in the producer role because it's Absolutely. something they see more. Yeah. If you want to be a director, write yeah. and do that. Yeah. Um, I think to talk about Epic would be interesting to show your Fantastic Beats oh. Beast clip. Uh, yeah. Could we do that? I, I was just going to point out, actually, oh. um, nearly all of our VFX producers are female. Um, so, yeah, within the VFX industry, we don't really see the gender split that you might do in other areas, which is oh. great. And actually, one of our co-founders, Sarah Bennett, um, she won an Academy Award um, for VFX, and she's only the second woman to have ever done that. So. Wow. it's amazing. Um, yeah, could we show the clip? Um, I'll talk over this a little bit. So um, Milk just created approximately 100 supporting VFX shots for Warner Brothers' Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, working with director um, David Yates and VFX supervisor Christian Mance. 
Um, the majority of our work was focused on this wand office uh, where we created full CG set extensions to make the room look much more vast with rows of magical animated desks. Um, our initial brief was just to add CG activity on one hero desk within the play, but the brief evolved over time into a full CG replacement of the room. Um, yeah, um, the work consisted of extending the room to infinity and populating it with multiple desks whose contents were controlled by magic. So uh, what you're seeing here is sort of um, CG environment extensions in order to create this vastness. Um, and we also did some uh, of the magic effects as well that you're seeing here. So we worked on some shots creating the famous Harry Potter's apparating effect. Um, and we did multiple wand effects, including Obliviate effect, all created using 2D compositing. Really fascinating. Um, does anyone have any questions? And who's that directed to in particular? Well, Anyone? Festivals. Short festivals, yeah, exactly. And you know, I, I think you have to pay for quite a lot of them, and it can be a bit of a pain. But um, but no, I had a friend who had did a short, and um, and you know, festivals started they were turning it down, turning it down, turning it down, and she just persisted. And then they started picking it up, and then the word of mouth goes through between the festivals, and then you know, because uh, also you know, these shorts festivals um, also have audiences, so then get something gets good word of mouth, and so that's why my friend, after about six months of getting turned down, suddenly it took off. So be persistent. Unfortunately, you do have to have to spend the money, and that's when you can, you get on the short circuit, and that's when you know you get the chance of getting some awards, and that's what you're after. So um, could we upload them to YouTube as well then, or would it just be no? Don't no. Yeah, festivals. no, I think that's it. Depending on the festival, they want to th they'll, they'll want the premiere and they want to make sure it's not online. So if you put it online, I think, I mean, look, I'm not an expert on shorts uh, by any stretch, but, um, but no, you should really protect it because there'll come a point where you can do that. Um, but I think unless you've got big marketing, then they're not. The other thing I was going to say about shorts, which I forgot to say earlier, is it's really, really, really important to do shorts in the genre that you want to make your first feature in. Um, so, you know, I have a friend um, and she wanted to make this low-budget sci-fi movie. Really, really great um, premise, really great. And needn't have been expensive, but because her shorts were drama, everyone's like, oh, can't see you doing sci-fi. Uh, and actually, you know, all films are drama at the centre of it. Um, so I thought it was pretty silly. But, you know, so if you if you're want to be a horror director, do a really cracking horror short. People look for horror directors all the time, but don't do horror if you're not a horror geek. But I think also because there is a huge expense, just limit to the ones that are most meaningful for that genre, um, rather than applying to ones that maybe don't have the same value. But also, if it is something that is a bit more like to go viral and you can build your audience online, there's increasingly a value in that. There's talent scouting going on online all the time. And, you know, speaking about lack of snobbery between different platforms, there's really exciting content, which yeah. is developed inherently online now. People like Vimeo, like a friend of mine had um, the staff, picks staff, really valuable. staff picks and got like hundreds of thousands of hits. Yeah. yeah. And then you've got a direct relationship with your audience, which is really valuable actually. Make sure you use it then. But yeah. So what, but what would you say about what I said about don't put it online until a certain time? If you think it's a festival film. Right. If you think actually I'm someone who wants to be more of a, you know, an online uh, voice, or if you have struggled with festivals, then you want to look at doing that. Um, but I think it's fine if you want to make something inherently for digital. Like, why not? Um, I know a lot of filmmakers that we've kind of gone on to fund who've come up in that manner um, and have gained quite a big following. So yeah. But how would they market themselves doing? How would they market to get to that to get people to see it? I, I'm not an expert, so I'm genuinely interested. Sorry. So, I mean, it's a combination, and each of them is different. Um, a lot of them will start with crowdfunding in the first instance, which in itself is a full-time job, so I don't think it's kind of easy. Um, but they'll normally buy in the expertise of someone else to support that campaign, so a marketeer who can pull out the core themes of their project and then tap into all the potential fundees. Then they come through to you releasing the film, and so often they might already have that audience. Um, there's loads of different examples. I mean, I've never done it myself, but 
I think it's equally valid. Did you have something to say on that, Eilos? Um, what I was going to say was once, once, you, once your film is out there and say you've got you know, 200,000 hits, then there may be some value in, in um, thinking about an agent and whether that's a sales agent or a, a director's agent, a talent agent, who can then help get you in touch with the other people who can make the most of your film. Any other questions? Hi. Hello. Yeah. Hi. Um, thanks for the talk. It's been great. Um, I wanted to ask about something you said just now regarding the genres of being known for a genre. Um, I hadn't really thought about that before now. Uh, and so thank you for bringing that up. So I wanted to ask if you, you're talking about horror. Uh, as being one genre, but then you've you got people like the legal gentleman will be done for sort of black comedy, um, which will blend the two things. Are there are there particular genres that should be avoided? You know, um, or, or certainly mixing mixing them at all. Um, you should not be mixing them. Yeah. And it's uh, I've been doing some lecturing for the NFTS, um, and I have been uh, tutoring a module on acquisitions, and um, I took my students to see a load of distributors and a load of salespeople and the one thing every single one of them said was if you mix a genre um, it, you can't sell it so and I've been lecturing on this for like a really long time but to hear it in black and white from absolutely everybody is because there are paths to market for all of these things and there are understandings and audiences know what to expect um, so if you're watching a romantic comedy, you know what to expect. If you're watching a horror, you know what to expect. If you're mixing them up, you don't know who it's for. And a really perfect example of that is a film I saw called Grabbers, which is a comedy horror. And actually, it was wonderful romance, but the people who went to see the creature feature were really disappointed because, like, you know, not enough creatures. Um, so, you know, these things do fall between the cracks. Um, and, you know, um, the other thing that I do all the time is I get onto things like Amazon Prime, or I get onto Netflix, or I get onto, um, you know, where you watch movies, and I look at the genres. And you can basically boil it all down into generic genres, which are action, comedy, drama. And if you even look on those, things like now, it's like even rom-com's not on there anymore. Um, so you need to, there are what I call the nine generic genres. Um, and, you know, it's, you need to make it really clear. Yeah. And so I have, you know, for example, people come to me and say, I've got a road movie. I'm like, that means absolutely nothing to me. It's like, is it, is it a comedy road movie? You can, we, we, can, we can all think of, like, comedy road movies, can't we? Or, you know, is, comi is, comedy the one is comedy the one thing you can mix with anything? Is that, is that No, you can't. No, ah, that's right. the, the opposite. If it's a comedy, it's a comedy. Right. And the other thing that people don't like is black comedy, offbeat comedy, quirky comedy, because that just means not funny. <laughs> and uh, comedy drama is another thing, and um, you know, and actually, I found myself doing it in one, my script. I was like, I found myself calling it a comedy drama. I was like, I'm, I'm actually ignoring my own advice because nobody wants a comedy drama, but a comedy or a drama. And I thought, why am I saying this? And I realised it was because I wasn't um, confident. It was a lack of confidence that it was funny. So I needed to be out, and it's a really weird. I don't know if it's a British thing. I don't know, but I was really, I was really, you know, if you call it a comedy, it's got to be fucking funny. <laughs> Excuse my language. Um, so, and I realised my agent was calling it a, a comedy, so, you know, so I was like, okay, well, I'm going to, it's a comedy. I mean, it's a sweet comedy, it's a gentle comedy, but it's still comedy. So, you know, you've got to be really, really clear. And going back to kind of making, making shorts, um, you're, you know, it's a showcase for your first film. So you've really got to think about the elements with it within, within that and what you're doing. And going back to horror, um, you know, I really enjoy selling good horror movies because there's this fan base out there that's amazing and there's all these websites and they're full of geeks who can't wait to get their hands on your projects. And, and if you've got a short, that short will be everywhere. So I can say to this, so I can say to, um, you know, whoever it is that, you know, shop till you drop, I, mean, I can't remember his name now, but because they've got this and he said, oh my God! So you can build an audience and then there's amazing festivals out there for horror as well. Um, places like Sitges and uh, Toronto Midnight and Sundance Midnight and all these just, it's, it's, it's a really, really, really good genre to work in if you are good. And I know a lot of people in my career have gone, I'm going to make a, do a horror movie and they're not into horror because all horror movies are, um, have an element of homage, all of them. 
Um, and you know, that's when the people you watch go, oh, I can see where you got that shot from. And people really like that. It's a community. It's a very strange community. And I love them a lot. But it's, you know, and they can smell a mile away a director or a writer who's doing a horror for the sake of doing a horror because... So if, you, if you're really into your horror, do horror if you're not doing So something like Scream, what would you describe that then? As a way too old movie to be using as a comp? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's the only one I can think of. It was of its time. <laughs> it's time. Okay. Any other questions? We've got ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a question for Aros. Um, so Sam said about she does a few workshops. Have you ever held any workshops, or would you ever think of doing any workshops in Wales for, to find new actors? Um, yes. Uh, yes, yes. I mean, there are, there are, uh, I, I, is this a question about uh, how actors, how you can get found as an actor, or is it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think there are lots of ways to get in, you know, to, to get into the industry as an actor. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, things like, you know, th there's the brilliant Welsh College of Music and Drama that run three uh, um, degree courses and at the end of that degree course you'll have done loads of different kinds of modules and at the end of that um, there'll be a showcase for agents and agents get to see you and then you get an agent and then an agent will get you auditions with people like me. Um, until, until you have an agent I, I probably wouldn't meet you um, for a film because, because I they're the people I turn to as as the filter of bringing me, you know, actors of a certain quality. So, so I, th I think you know there there are lots of ways to get agents, lots of different ways, you know, but but doing it and putting yourself in plays, putting yourself in on short films, putting yourself, you know, going going to school, going to places like the Welsh College. That's that's the you know a, the way to do it. Any other questions? We've got time for one more. Um, hi, I just wanted to ask if you think it's problematic for people to know you for different things, like different roles in any sort of production, really. Like I think there's starting out, yeah. there's a bit of a kind of, I don't know what the word is, dislike of people who are certainly wanting to be writer, producer, director, but also writer, director. Because essentially that's like the holy trinity of roles and you're taking up two of them and you're unproven. But as you develop, what does everyone else think? From a VFX viewpoint, mm. I get a lot of applicants who just say, hey, I want to work in VFX. And it's like, that's great, what do you want to do? <laughs> um, so, you know, if you're going for jobs within that industry, you should sort of look at the different roles available within that industry and market yourself for that. Uh, definitely, if you, if you want to come in and get an entry-level job because I, as a recruiter, can't look at your CV and go, okay, I'll put you in this department or that, that department because I don't know what you're suited or what you're trained to do. I mean, if, you, if, you're, if you're Danny Boyle, you know, you can be an opera director and a film director and a theatre director. And, but you, I guess he's a director of all those things. Oh, the Olympics. He directed the Olympics, <laughs> didn't he? Um, so, you know, you, you, once you get to... Uh, once you make a name for yourself and you make good stuff, then I, that gives you permission to hop around. Okay. Did you have any thoughts? Well, no, I was just going to go back to what we were saying earlier as well, though. But don't turn down a job. Mm. If you get a job, take the job. Because if you're getting any kind of experience at all within some element, then, then you should do it. Do you, feel, do you feel like you need to sort of curate your... If you're applying for something else, like what you would say you've done or not? Or yeah. Just yeah, yeah, I would do that. Kind of and you enhance the relevant ones and... Not necessarily play it down, but I think, you know, and actually this goes back to something that we were uh, talking about earlier, which is that I've um, hired a lot of people in my own career and a lot of kind of first jobbers, really. Um, and, you know, I certainly didn't necessarily want to see a graduate. I mean, yes, great, but actually what I really wanted to see was someone who'd sit down in my office and knew how to use, you know, the software and had some experience of, you know, working in an office. And so if they had a kind of an interesting... CV that showed they had worked, that would be more interesting to me than someone who was sort of you know, one job out of university, because I want to see someone who's going to be versatile. Mm -hmm. So, which is kind of contrary to kind of what you're saying. I'm talking about industry, basically. 
but um but you yes, know. reality is for a sustainable career then you've got to be able to not just work across different mediums but also maybe do other things but it's all about kind of branding yourself even online is it coming from yes. the same place everything you're trying to say even if it doesn't seem obvious then it, it, it makes perfect sense we all have to be cross arts to make a living really. that's, that's exactly right and it's interesting using the word branding yourself mm. it is about sort of which is not a comfortable process but no. You are marketing yourself as a product to be yeah. sold, basically. It, yes. it sounds awful, but it's true. Yes, it's interesting. It's, interesting. it's a good way of putting it. Um, well, we've got like five minutes. I just wanted to say Film Cymru runs the BFI Welsh Talent Network for new and emerging talent. Anyone who's a graduate or will graduate, we have short film funding, development, production, um, mentoring, career progression. We run events, masterclasses, and we run Foot in the Door, which is a training programme to get your first experience of film and TV with a placement on set. So do look us up. Um, Final thoughts, any last piece of advice from everyone on the people in the room for getting into film and TV or getting the next step in their career? Uh, it's really tough and competitive, um, so follow your heart and, and, and go for it. Take any work you can, even if it's not where your end goal is, it's a foot on the ladder and it can translate very easily and you can worm your way through. Don't be a dick. <laughs> <laughs> that was a piece of advice that a friend of mine, Giles Edwards, who's in um, acquisitions, um, he came to speak to my, my students, and he kind of we got to the end. And he sort of said, he just he, and he just don't be a dick. So that's fr from from Giles to you, don't be a dick. That's for all of us. <laughs> for all of us. Well, it is, there is an element of be humble as well, isn't there? There is an element of don't pretend you know too much. You know, yeah, I would say listening is the most important skill. Yeah. And as you develop and on and on, listen, disregard it if it's nonsense, but listen and use all the networks that you have around you. Every single person is potentially going to break your career. Um, so it's so important to have your connections. And I think that's it. Is that all? Okay. Thanks, everybody, so much. And thanks Thank to you. the amazing panel <laughs> and BAFTA <laughs> and my tech